0: You know, George, when he was a young boy, wanted desperately to have an electric train set. But his parents were poor and couldn't give him one. When he got to the stage where he's earning a bit of money, there were too many other claims on his income for him to indulge himself with his toy. There came a glint in his eye. There came a hope in his heart when, after he was married, they had a child. And yes, it was a little boy. As this little boy grew up, long before he was really ready for it, George bought him for Christmas the best Hornby 00 lavish set that he could afford. By Christmas morning, saw the dad and son scrambling around all over the living room floor. They put up the tracks, and then there was the station and the rolling stock. It all had to be done, and it was exciting to do. Mum called them away for dinner before it was finished. They came back again immediately afterwards on their knees, finishing off the job. As soon as it was finished... George said to wee Georgie, push the button. He did. And nothing happened. It was dead. So he said, turn it off and try again. Push the button. So he did. And once again, the set was dead. Oh, I'll fiddle with the electrics, he said. So he spent a time going through the electrics and still, when it got to pressing the button, it was dead (sighs) what were they to do they got a bit fed up so got off their knees to give themselves a stretch and as they were getting up Georgie picked up uh, it it was just a part that had fallen onto the track it was a signal and when he picked it up to the surprise of everybody else, the track suddenly came alive, and this engine and all the rest were rolling around all over the track. You know, all the mighty power that was available to the electricity company that was fueling every home in that estate on that Christmas morning, why? It couldn't do anything for that little that little train set. Because all the while it was short-circuited, it was dead. Now, theologically, the Bible teaches that there are three kinds of death known to human beings. There's spiritual death. And when you were born, your parents had you because they wanted you to live. Which I think most of you can say that that's still happening. And then again, you were born into a state when you were a baby of spiritual death. Paul summed up this beautifully when he was writing to the Ephesians and he said in chapter 2, And you, who once were dead in trespasses and sins, have been made alive in Christ." The electric train set has come alive in your hearts. There's another form of death, of course, and that's physical death, with which, sadly, we're all very much accustomed to. And we all know about it, the last enemy, the grim reaper. He comes for us all, one out of one, dies, including you, including me. And then there's another form of death, and in connection with that one, Scripture says in Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto us once to die. But there is a third kind of death, and it's eternal death. And this one says that after death comes judgment. And in Revelation, we're shown a picture of the books being opened. And it says... Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb's book, the Jesus book, those whose names are written there because they know Jesus and Jesus knows them, those whose names are not recorded there should be cast into a lake of fire. Revelation 20.14 tells us that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire This eternal lake was never intended for human beings at all. I hope you understand that about hell because God said in our reading a little while ago, he says he wishes that all men are to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Ultimately, we can only praise God because we're saved but we have no complaints if we're judged and we're judged in this way. I don't like Adam and Eve because they got us into all this trouble. In fact, I hate them for that reason. But I tell you something, I've got a lot of sympathy for them. When they were in the garden and God came to them, he said to them, in the day that you take of that forbidden fruit, you would die. But you see, there weren't anybody else except Adam and Eve, and nobody had ever died before. So how were they to know what death was? When I was in North London, and my kids were young, at least the first two were, and the others still had yet to come, my youngest daughter ran in from the garden and she was shouting with a kind of pleasure in her voice that her little rabbit had died. Flossie's dead, she said, all very happy. Joy thought, what a callous little girl I brought into the world. (laughs) They went outside and they looked in the pen where I'd built at the end of the garden and there was Flossie. Actually she was told that Flossie was dead by a big sister she didn't actually go and see for herself. But what happened was when we looked in the cage that Flossie really was dead. Her head had been ripped off and there was the rest of the carcass lying there on the grass bleeding. I picked it up and put it in a box and I walked round the corner to a neighbor the Labour said to me when I, she opened the door, don't show me what's there. She said, I don't want to see. And she knew what it was because her Alsatian dog had jumped over the fence, crashing part of our defence, entered into the cage and savaged our little bunny. Now, even that, we were compensated for it. She got, gave us two rabbits in exchange for Flossie, but that wasn't the story. The story comes to this. I took what were the remains of Flossie, I dug a hole at the end of the garden, I put Flossie in it in her box, and I even had a little service with the children. But when I started putting soil over the top of Flossie, My youngest daughter just simply burst into tears. That was the first time she ever knew what death was. And in human experience with little babies, they've got to grow up. And there comes a first time in everybody's life when they discover the reality of it. Now, it would seem for a moment or two that I've gone off my subject, but I haven't. I think you'll see that it's linked up with what I've just said. In our country, we haven't had, for some time, what could be called um, an all-out strike. We've had some little flirtatious strikes, but nothing quite like a general strike. But when strikes take place, there's a lot of words that are banded around and We ordinary people don't really know what it's all about. Let me tell you some of them. Mediation. Now that's concerned to bring parties from extreme positions to a middle ground that is acceptable to both sides. Then there's arbitration. That's concerned with judging between the two parties that are at variance but not necessarily finding any middle ground between them. Then there's the negotiation. Similar word, but it means that there's a battle going on, there's a power game, and it usually leads to a conclusion with one party or the other gaining the ascendancy and winning the argument. Usually they're more able, skillful, and they've got a lot more money behind them. Then there's another word we use at such times, conciliation, by which we mean that we assume two parties who have been trying desperately to get a relationship going and solve the strike, tries to simply minimise the damage that it's going to cause and has already caused simply because there is no answer to the problem. But it's another word, and it's the central word of all I'm speaking of this evening, reconciliation. That means when two parties become so friendly after a considerable estrangement, a genuine estrangement where they've been as foes, and it literally means to change thoroughly so that the whole circumstance of what they're discussing and everything about it is so changed that there's equability and peace and the country can go forward beautifully. Literally, it means to change thoroughly. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, this is what we read. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you know that that word reconciliation is probably the best word in our English dictionary? It means so much and it's of such value. If God was doing that, how was he going to do it and how did he do it if he's already done it? Well, if I turn to 1 Timothy 2, we read these words in verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given in its proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, and a teacher of the true faith, to the Gentiles that's my text but you don't take it on a pretext out of context we're not allowed to do that in Walton so I'll give you the rest of it the first part of the chapter is about worshipping God as men in prayer I urge he said that when you men come to worship God you pray lift up holy hands pray And he says, pray for everybody. Pray for everything. Really pray when you come to God to worship him. Now, it's interesting that all religions pray, but they don't all pray to the same God. I would argue quite cogently that the Christian God is altogether different from the Muslim God. They're a very matter of comparisons with the Hebrew God. But Job, right at the beginning of the Bible, says this. He says in the New Amplified Standard Bible, there is no umpire between us. When he was in his suffering, Job realized he wanted someone to be a mediator. Between this God who is afflicting him with the suffering and his own painful experience. No umpire. (laughs) Think of a cricket match without one. Or a football match without a referee. We need a mediator. Simply because of the nature of God, how great, beautiful, holy and pure he is. That we sinful being can't just come into God's presence any way we wish to do so. And it's through this mediator that men are expected to pray to God. Coming down towards the end of the chapter, it talks about how women ought to behave when they come to worship. They don't come dressed up to impress each other, they come in modest dress so they can please God. They're not like those who worshipped in the synagogue in the balcony, who all through the service when the men were doing it downstairs, they were arguing and talking and talking about their washing, their shopping, the cooking and everything else. Oh, no. So that's what's the background of these last verses, which you may forgive me for not entering into this evening. But they are difficult verses and they're important in this particular age. Jewish tradition says that there's no need of a mediator. Well, at least that's modern Judaism. It says you can go to God directly and talk with him and pray with him. You don't need anyone to come between. But if they go back into their Old Testament, they will see very clearly that there's all the indications of a need for someone to come between God and men. For example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that the angels were the mediators of the law that was given to Moses. And Galatians 3.19 confirms it, that Moses was the mediator of the law. So it wasn't as if they weren't used to the idea And then there was the sacrificial system. What was all that about? People bringing animal after animal and offering it upon an altar, shedding blood and identifying with it. What was it all about? It was because there needed to be something that came between God and ourselves that could bridge the gap. Then there was the priesthood. Wasn't that what the priests were for? To act as kind of mediators? And then the festivals. They all bring out the same kind of truth for such a need. I want to mention for three simple things this evening from the text that we have. One is God's mediator, the man. And then secondly, God's mediator, the message. And then finally, God's mediator, the messengers. So God's mediator, the man. We say in the Apostles' Creed when we go to church, I believe in God Almighty. We're not just lining up with the Jews. We're not monotheists for the sake of it, as Muslims seem to be. We're not really just trying to oppose atheists who says there's no God at all. Or polytheists, like so many, who create their own gods and worship them in other religions. We worship God who's a triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. So when we come to him to pray, you men, you ladies too. You come to God the Father through the Son and by the energy and help. Of the Holy Spirit. Our text is translated this way in the Revised Version One God, Himself, man, Christ Jesus. I guess there can't be four words that are more sublime than that, can there? Let's see them again One God, Himself, man, Christ Jesus. Dr. Gurney echoes that in his commentary, and he says, himself man, Christ Jesus. He doesn't say himself man, Christ Jesus, and also one mediator. The mediator is both the God and the man. So he has to qualify on the sides of both parties that are at variance on both their sides to be acceptable to them so that he can be what he wants to be and that is a mediator. Jesus was both God and man. Romans 9 and verse 5 brings this out so clearly. Paul writes, "Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is trace the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. But in this particular part, we see that he's emphasised as the man, Christ Jesus, oh, himself a man. We say rightly that the cross at Easter is such an important part of our Christian celebration. But so is Christmas, when the incarnation took place and Jesus did become a man. As a man, he could understand our sorrows and share our burdens. He could carry our cares and knows all about our afflictions. In fact, it says in Scripture, in all our afflictions, he is afflicted. Or as the hymn puts it, he sympathises with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. So that this Lord Jesus as a man knows disappointment. He knows bitterness of others and the anguish of being rejected He knows the horror of desolation. So it naturally follows then, doesn't it, that there are not God's many and Lord's many. There can be only one who could achieve this who would be acceptable on both sides. And you will notice when I gave you 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It was a one-way passage. God didn't have to be reconciled to man, but man did have to be reconciled to God, hence the need for a mediator. Peter got it right when he was preaching and he said there was no other name under heaven given among men by a person could be saved and John said in his gospel and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory now if there really is one mediator one Jesus Christ to mediate for us there can be no mediatrics what I mean is that our friends, the Roman Catholics, would teach us that Mary was born with a nature that was sinless so that people can go to her to pray, and she acts as a mediatrix between God and men. To me, such teaching is blasphemous and unbiblical, particularly when we discover That Mary in her prayer, when she gives thanks to God for the fact that she's conceived and she's going to have a baby boy, she refers to him in the Magnificat as her saviour. So Jesus was Mary's saviour. She can't be a saviour of others. How then are we to approach God in prayer? We must not just ever use the phrase, in Jesus' name. We've got to use that phrase, but we've got to mean it and understand it when we pray. You can't use it kind of like a mantra, you know, in Jesus' name, right, okay, get on with work. It's not quite like that. But there is only one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, number of years ago, I got to be quite popular on Radio Derby, doing the Lift Up Your Hearts programme. It used to come on about 10 to 8 in the morning, and it was for about four minutes. I did a series once, and the last one they didn't publish. They didn't broadcast it. I got in touch with the studio, and I said, why didn't you do it? They said, because you're going too far by saying that Jesus is the only way to God. And they stopped it, and somebody else was substituted in my place. That was 30 years ago. It's far worse now than ever it was then. And yet, as Christians, we still have to insist on this as truth, because this is what Paul is saying, this is what God has revealed. There is one mediator And it's Jesus Christ. So let's come now in the second place to have a look at God's mediator, the message. And the message is just simply this, who gave himself as a ransom. Do you know that last week, in both sermons, Andy in the morning and John in the evening, they quoted Mark 10.45, where it tells us that Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to, everybody, give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the word ransom is one of those words with a very clear, unmistakable meaning. It means the death of Jesus was to be a sacrifice and an atonement for all sins whereby the sinner goes free who accepts that finished work as his ground of salvation alone. The word ransom, or its accompanying word, redemption, um, it's got a number of ideas associated with it. it. It means the price has been paid for the setting free of a prisoner or uh, someone who's held against their will. Those historians amongst us remember how Richard I went out to the Crusades. He came back victorious but was arrested by a band of brigands. And this cheeky lot held up the whole country to ransom for the king. And in our country, we had to come up through our taxes and various other things to be able to pay what came to be called the king's ransom. And that's what Christ paid for us upon the cross. It was a king's ransom. It has to do for us with us who are in bondage to sin and are slaves to sin gaining our freedom through the payment of a price. There are three Greek words really that mean something quite similar but they have different stages of meaning. One says that the price has been paid therefore you're no longer a slave. The other says the price has been paid and whoever's paid it can now take the slave away with them. The third says that The price has been paid, you can take that slave out of the slave market. Furthermore, you can take it home and it becomes your property and you can do with it as you will. Let me give you another illustration. Back in Roman days, it was assumed that every citizen obeyed the laws of Rome and they ruled with an iron fist. If you broke the law, usually in your allegiance to Caesar, perhaps you didn't pick a pinch of incense to offer it to him, for in those days they thought of him as a god and actually worshipped him, and it was a criminal offence not to worship Caesar, and Christians couldn't do that. If they were found guilty of some crime that they had committed... Then they went through the courts and they were thrown into the prison or they were guilty before the crown. The guilty man had on the wall of his prison a piece of papyri on which was listed the crimes that he had committed and the penalty that he had to be subjected to. When he had finished his... He'd paid his price, if you like, and he was free to come out. He'd served his sentence. There was handed to him a rather tattered piece of papyri. It was called the Certificate of Debt. And on it, on his release, there would be stamped these words Paid in full. All oh, that is simply quite wonderful. Because we too have broken God's laws. All have sinned. We stand condemned and quite rightly so from the perspective of a holy God unless there is a mediator who's paid the price. Now, just come and listen to these words in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. It's always the way when you want to find something. It's never in your Bible, is it? Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Remember what I've just said. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. What did he do? To achieve that in his reconciliation, he forgave us all our sins. How? Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross doesn't that bring meaning to it so that on good friday when jesus suffered that fatal death for us he was paying a ransom price at great cost to himself he paid the penalty for every ugly filthy rotten indecent sin that you may have ever thought or done. After the three hours of darkness, when he had endured it all, he shouted from the cross, quite literally in his weakness. Tetelestai, he said. What is a rough translation of that Greek word? Paid in full. Nothing more can be paid for that ransom. It's been done. In 1939, when the war broke out, date of my birth, Maximilian Colby was a Franciscan priest. And uh, it was just at the time when the Nazis overran Poland and the war really began. Two years later, at a concentration camp in Auschwitz, and it's all come to light more recently, he volunteered to take the place of a fellow prisoner who had been condemned to starve to death. The prisoner did starve to death. Forty years later, there was a special ceremony that was held to honour the heroic act of Maximilian Colby. He was an old man then, but he was there Think what it must have been like to celebrate the life who gave himself in death that you might live, and now you have lived right through to your older years. What a sense of gratitude he must have had and a sense of dedication to that man. Listen to this. Look, Father, look on his anointed face, And only look on us as found in him. Look not on our misusings of your grace, our prayers so languid and our faith so dim. For lo, between our sins and their reward, we set the passion of your Son, our Lord. So it is that, There was not only a mediator, but one who was prepared to pay the price. There was the ransom. But let's finish with God's mediator, the messengers, and here we come to ourselves. Paul is very keen always to give his testimony, and numbers of times in Scripture he does so. He says he was the worst of sinners unworthy of the grace of God. And yet God had chosen him to be, and then he tells us. He says, I was called to be a herald. A herald is someone who makes a statement to the effect that what he is saying is true, and he proclaims it. He makes it known. He publishes it abroad, aloud, because it's the message of the king. He's a bit like an old-fashioned town crier who goes out into the square with his bell and he rings it and he says, oh, yay, oh, yay. Paul does that with the gospel. He broadcasts it. He said, I'm a witness. And a witness is someone who says, yes, this is true, only because I know it to be true. And on that day, when on the Damascus Road that Christ confronted him, there was a complete change of life. And then it was filled out for three years when he was in the the wilderness, when God came to him to reveal the details of the gospel. And let's face it, a man who was a rabbi, brought up under one of the greatest intellects of Judaism, he could see how this gospel of Jesus related to all the Old Testament. No wonder we've got such wonderful books in our New Testament. He was a witness to it. He was an envoy, he says. His duty was to commend and represent his country in a foreign land, if necessary, In the Christian sense of this envoy, he wanted to tell the story of Jesus so that it could mean as much to them as it meant to him. It was the message of the king, once again, to the people. He was an ambassador, as he says himself, in chains with this message. And then he says he was a teacher. His task was to so speak of the facts of Christ, how people could enter into the reality of Christ by his bringing out the meaning of the cross in all its fullness, to enable others to think through the doctrines of salvation. And this is what he did. All about Jesus, who had paid a ransom to become our mediator. You know... That's what Paul was called to do. But it isn't incumbent upon all of us if, if we've got a mediator and we've got one who's paid that ransom price for us, that we also ought to be heralds, witnesses, envoys, teachers and anything else we can be, that this message will go out to other people. C.T. Studd once wrote this towards the end of his life. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He had a passion for Jesus, a real desire to live with him. And it was seldom that you get into conversation with Paul before all the roads led to Jesus. Isn't it wonderful when people think of us in that same kind of way? Well, we're all sinners. We all need this one mediator to be eternally safe. Have you come to God through the only means that is available? It's not too late. You could do that this evening. If you but repent, turn to him and believe. In a moment or two, Michael's going to lead us in the Holy Communion. And twice in Scripture, there is the phrase, the mediator of the new covenant. That's what this is, a new covenant before God, based on exactly what we've been talking about this evening. May God bless you in your life of service for him.